I mean, uh, I do think better can be the enemy of good. Yeah, there um, we go. We got the quote right. I, I don't know if I'm, <laughs> I'm messing it up now. But <laughs> Hi, I'm Peter Boch. As a serial founder, I burned out while scaling my previous company to 10 million users. After selling the company, I took a year off and realized that doing nothing wouldn't help. Running is the only thing that's harder than running your own business, is what a friend told me at the time. So I looked into trail running and fell in love with the sport. Then I realized all the similarities between endurance sports and running your own business. And that's when I knew I had to do something more. That's how Trail and Scale was born. So welcome everybody to the Trail and Scale podcast, where we share conversations with some of the world's most interesting endurance athletes and founders. We'll talk about nutrition, goal setting, wellness, longevity, race planning, and so much more. This podcast is your aid station on your journey to success. In this episode, I spoke to American ultra distance trail runner, Corinne Malcolm. But Corinne is so much more than just a trail runner. I love to hear Corinne talk about all the different things she does in her life and how she finds balance. And she even makes enough time for her husband and her dog. Corinne, who are you and what brings you to Cape Town? My name is Corinne Malcolm and I am a commentator, a podcaster, a coach, and editor-in-chief, um, and I am in Cape Town as a professional runner this time around, instead of being behind the lens to run the 100K at Ultra Trail Cape Town. And how are you feeling uh, just before the race? Uh, I've been in Cape Town for all of like 12 hours, so I'm uh, catching up with being hopefully in the correct time zone, but I'm really excited. It's a beautiful course, and I got to watch it from a bird's eye view last year and from a GoPro view last year, mm. and I'm excited to actually be out on the trails, independent of how I actually end up feeling. Since you, are, um, you just arrived here, how, how do you make sure that you function? even being jet lagged and, and, and arriving so, so close to a race. Yeah, it's, it's difficult sometimes to arrive so close, but it allows me to like leave home feeling really good about being gone. Um, I leave, I like at home, I leave like my husband and my dog and mm. it's hard to, you know, like find care for everyone. Um, particularly like my husband is an emergency medicine doctor. So having to find dog care for who, a, our dog is essentially our child. So I'm like <laughs> always treading to try to like make sure that I leave home with everyone feeling like they're in a good spot. So I made the trip kind of short on the front end to get here in time to feel good racing just a couple days before. But at the same time, I'm in here with my mom this year <laughs> too, which is really special. And so we'll be in Cape Town for two weeks total with most of that time coming post-race so that we can explore um, locally and then a little bit outside of Cape Town as well. So it's a balance of like feeling good for the race, but also um, making sure that I'm balancing the other really important things in my life. Is this generally something that you like to do when you travel that you kind of make it a bit of a vacation as well, bring people along? I try for sure. I definitely, there's a business side of running where it's like, particularly if I'm working the media for it, I have been on the ground for 36 hours for a race before I like fly in, I run the panel, I do the live commentary, I see everyone at the finish line and then I fly home. Um, same with some races where it's like, I fly in and out by myself. It's a super short, quick business trip. And then other races, particularly ones where I'm traveling further from home with a, lo a long bit of travel, I want to make it kind of feel like 
worth like worth the trip, worth the huck. Um, so when I find myself in Europe or in a place like Cape Town or Japan or New Zealand, that I get to spend a little bit of time on the ground there so that I get to hopefully explore beyond the race course, because it's always a little bit sad when you come and you get to see, you know, a beautiful 100K or even 100 mile, but it feels a little bit incomplete if I don't get to like actually explore off the race course as well. So it's a bit of both. Yeah, it used to happen to me a lot in the past when I used to travel for work. Um, I'm Austrian and I would go to Berlin for, mm -hmm. for business trips. And after the 10th trip, I literally haven't seen anything in Berlin. <laughs> like I literally didn't know anything apart from the venue that I, you know, attended yeah. this conference at. It's hard. I did that for years. I, so I used to do biathlon. So I skied in a circle with a rifle and my husband was a professional mountain biker racing cross country, like world cups. Mm -hmm. And so same sort of thing. Like you go and the only thing you've ever seen is like this two and a half kilometer loop that you're skiing on or this, you know, whatever it is, a 15 minute loop that encompasses the race course for a cross country mountain bike race. And you haven't seen the local coffee shops and where people mm -hmm. go and hang out and experience any of the local culture. And so I think now in my running career, that's something that I've wanted to take more seriously, like make an actual effort to get to explore off the racetrack because you're right. Yeah. It's like you're there for, even if you're there for a week and you're racing on a world, like the world cup stage, you don't see anything besides that venue. Cause mm -hmm. it's like you run from the hotel yeah. to the venue, you ski in a circle, you run back to the hotel and like repeat the next day. So ultra running feels very relaxed in that regard. Speaking of trips and uh, the difference of being at home. Um, what's very important for, for founders and athletes alike, I believe is having strong rituals and routines. You said in a, before this interview, you said that you love coffee. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that's part of your routine. Tell us a little bit about your routine at home and then how it changes when you travel and how, what are the, the things that you always make sure that you do no matter where you are? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I feel like I have a ritual for home and a ritual for being on the road just because there's like key elements that aren't aren't on the road with me. Like my dog, who once again, she's my, my dog. Her name is Peter. and <laughs> She's very important to me. Um, so she's part of my ritual at home. Right. It's like if she's not running with me. I'm taking her for walks like we have our morning routine pretty dialed in which I wake up and make coffee and then I coax her out of bed so that she can like go outside and have breakfast and all this stuff. And I don't have that when I'm on the road, but I still try to encompass some of that, right? Like I like to get up and have something warm right away, either tea or coffee, something to kind of start my day. Um, and then generally like get outside, be it, even if it's not for my run yet, it's a walk. And so this morning, my mom and I, we woke up and had some tea and then we like walked to go find some coffee. And that feels like it's kind of akin to that same routine that I have at home. Um, but yeah, there's some key elements that aren't always on the road with me. And so it's adapting to those things and then adapting when I get back home again. But yeah, it's that warm, the warm thing in the morning, the tea or the coffee generally for me. And then I think it's also like that bedtime routine of like, when do I wind down is the bigger piece of the puzzle for me. Um, like making sure I have a book with me, making sure I like get off devices at a certain time so that I can go to bed. Um, which is all made harder when you're in a new time zone all of a yeah. sudden, you're like trying to convince your body that it is time to go to sleep. Um, but I do think that it's, it's very small things. It's not like these big, very rigid routines, just because if I had to be super rigid, it wouldn't allow me maybe, you know, I'm here in Cape town and I know that like, I, I want to run with some people when I head out. And so it's like, you know, maybe I would have run at 10 a.m. at home, but today I'll run at 4 p.m. because I've got a friend who wants to go do a shakeout with me. So it's like, 
flexibility is really important on the road as well. And just not like finding small bits of my routine that allow for consistency while at the same time, not being so rigid that I like feel flustered traveling. Cause I think it's really easy for elite athletes in particular to feel really flustered when things aren't perfect. And I've realized that perfect isn't like what we're aiming for. And so that to me has been really very important. Are you strict with like bedtimes and wake up times though? Not really. I just like to try to get enough sleep is the big thing. So generally at home, I'm probably in bed between like 9.30 and 10 p.m. and up at 6 a.m. We joke, I live in Seattle, Washington, and right now it's very dark at home. We call it the big dark, okay. actually. So sunsets now around like 4, 4.30 p.m. Yeah. Um, so the days are much, much shorter hmm. than normal. And so um, I actually, because I'm, my life is fairly flexible, Like I run early in the morning most most year, but actually now that it's the big dark and it doesn't get light until earlier, I actually wake up now and have my coffee and do work for a number of hours before I head out to run. So there's like this seasonal flux for sure, but it's probably, you know, pretty like, I don't know. I just find that I go to bed at 10 and wake up at six and I get eight hours of sleep and call it good. Yeah. Great. Let's talk a little bit about your athletic career so far. Um, Training for Olympic level Nordic skiing, and then how you got from there to being a trail runner. How, what are the similarities? Where, where did you start? How did you start with your, with your ski or like Nordic sports? Yeah, I think I've, I've, so I've been very athletic since I was super little. My mom who's sitting outside of this room would agree with that. Um, I've got two younger brothers, uh, who were my size very quickly. And so I've been racing them since they could all walk basically. Um, but I started cross country skiing, so Nordic skiing in high school and I was actually hurt running. And so I they didn't want me to run over the winter. So they said, you got to find another sport. So I started cross country skiing and that, like, I hated it. I was really bad. I was, I complained every day at practice. Like I was probably not a very fun, like 14 year old to have on the team. Um, but eventually I found that I really liked skiing more than I liked running. I liked the challenge of it. I liked the demands that it placed on me that I, like, I wasn't naturally good at it, that I had to like fight really hard to get, to get better, to like work hard to get better. Um, and so like running became what I did for my skiing in the off season versus skiing being this like kind of throwaway sport in the middle of my year. So by the time I left to go to university, um, skiing was like the number one thing for me, like actually like skiing made my decisions for me. It's mm -hmm. like, there are only so many colleges in the U S that you can ski at. And so I was like, cool. Like, I don't want to go to the East coast. I don't want to stay in the Midwest. I want to go to a Western U S school and I want to ski. And I was like, cool, these are my four options. Like, where am I going to go? Mm -hmm. And I ended up in Montana, um, and loved it, but ended up actually getting recruited to do biathlon. So skiing again, skiing with a rifle. And just a normal, a normal thing to do. Um, I grew up in Wisconsin, so I've been like shooting BB guns and guns since I was a little kid. Um, very classic Wisconsin things. Uh, um, so yeah, like started, like got recruited to do biathlon. So I actually dropped out of college and packed up all my stuff and moved across the country to try a sport that I had done shooting and I had done skiing, but I hadn't tried to do them ever together. But again, it was like this new challenge and I, there was like a new opportunity and a new pipeline um, to advance. And so I loved like this new challenge being like, I like being a beginner, I think is part of it. Like I love rock climbing because I'm horrible at it and it like really tests me in like all my weaknesses. And so I think biathlon was that thing where it was like, you're really bad at this and you're gonna have to learn to get better at it. Um, and very quickly 
like was on the junior team and then made the national team and went through a whole Olympic cycle with the U S biathlon team living in the Olympic training center out East. Um, but I was like 10 years younger than my teammates. Like they didn't have like a development team at that time to kind of like funnel you into being a senior and definitely like kind of fell through the cracks and was overtrained and burnt out and all the things an eager athlete falls into without anyone like as a safety net to catch you. Um, so went like, like basically like had to leave the sport because I was overtrained and moved back to Montana where all my friends were to finish out college and realized that trail running was basically what we did every weekend all summer for ski training. I was like, oh, we get to go run for six hours with snacks. Like I can do that. Like I'm, I'm really good at running with snacks for six hours. Like we get to go eat in the mountains. Yeah, I can, I can do that. So started like after taking some time off of sport, cause I was just, once again, like my body wasn't going to let me like do anything super serious. Um, I started running locally in Montana, um, had some amazing mentors there who happened to be like some of the best in the sport at that time. Uh, this woman, Nikki Kimball, who's been top 10 at Western States 10 times, like was one of the locals who was like, oh, you want to go run for 20 miles? Like, come hang out with us. Um, and that quickly evolved. So like dropped out, I like stopped doing biathlon during like the Sochi Olympics, essentially. 2014 was the alternate for that Olympic Games. And then started running trail races in like 2015, 2016. So I gave myself like 18 months and then apparently found a new sport to learn to be a beginner again and have to learn again very, very quickly. But yeah, similar, right? You get to run for six hours with snacks, but also yeah. it's just like the, the challenge. Like there's a different, there's a different mental challenge there. There's, you go run hundred K or hundred mile and you have no idea what you're going to get. And that's like super similar, I think to particularly biathlon where you come into a shooting range and it could be, the wind could be blowing sideways and like, it's kind of tough luck. So I think I like, I like that aspect of like the unknown. How old were you when you made that decision to quit the biathlon? I was 23. So like, it's almost 10 years ago, which feels kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like made it through the first half of Olympic trials and then was invited to the second half of Olympic trials and had to bow out of them because I was just like super sick essentially. And so that was, yeah, the fall. I like got Nate. I like, yeah, it was like a, a matter of months where it was like turned 23, left the sport, um, which we joked was my first retirement. Yeah. So retirement 1.0 went pretty, pretty okay. Um, but it was weird. Like I, instead of going to the Sochi Olympics, I was enrolled in like 21 university credits, like more than full time. Cause I was like, well, I'm not walking into the opening ceremonies. I have to like go full in on finishing school. So I think I took three semesters to finish what should have been like four or five semesters because I just like needed my energy to go, go yeah. somewhere. Mm. Yeah. But a lot, I like reflected on this recently that that was like 10 years ago, basically like 10 years ago this winter, mm. um, which feels kind of crazy to have that much time between uh, like two very, or like very like profound life experiences of like feeling like super, super high highs, but also like a really hard low point. You also coaching athletes, mm -hmm. um, you're coaching young athletes as well. I've coached young athletes. I've coached like middle school and high school athletes that now are like running track professionally, which is kind of crazy. Like I knew, uh, there's this kid, Duncan Hamilton, who just signed with Bowerman, the Bowerman track club. And I remember when he was like a sixth grader. And so it's like very weird to see these kids like graduate college and be professional athletes. But, um, and I've coached like youth cross country skiing and biathlon 
And now I predominantly coach adults, like like people that are my peers. My athletes right now range in age from like 28 to 72. So it's a very eclectic group of humans, but it's been super fulfilling to kind of get to work with that group of athletes. Especially for young athletes, Dolph, looking back at your, at your own career choices and how you decided to quit one sport and then you found another one. Yeah. What is your advice to a young athlete who is 14 years old, 17 years old or 20 years old? Mm -hmm. um, how do they make the choice uh, to, to go all in or to find something else? What, is it a, a feeling or is it a calculated decision? Really? Yeah, I think it's super interesting because I think one of my strengths, weirdly enough, is like knowing when to quit, like knowing when it's like not not worth it anymore. Um, when things are like finally like, okay, like I, I need to walk away from this. And, and as soon as you make the decision, like you feel relief, which I think is generally an indicator of making the right decision. You're like, ah, oh, like it's a sense of calm and peace, but it's not, it's not easy. And I would say that like, when I look, when I look back at or work with really young athletes, I try to convey to them that they have so many chapters ahead of them. Like they could be a high level athlete in four sports between being 14 and 34. Um, so not to, not to put pressure on themselves to need to be at X, Y, or Z place in the pipeline because everyone's on their own trajectory in that sense. So there's a bunch of discussions right now within like the U S ski community, as far as like, how do we keep athletes in the sport long enough so that they're at the age where people actually end up peaking? because they generally athletes leave, particularly female athletes leave sports earlier. Um, And so trying to keep, keep those athletes in sport and just whatever sport they feel the most passionate about right now, um, knowing full well that maybe they're playing soccer right now, but they could be an amazing runner 10 years from now type of thing, like not making them feel pressure to make that decision yet. Like, I think there's a lot to be said for just like being really athletic over like being like fully all in, in trail running or ultra running or skiing or soccer or whatever it is like coaching young athletes i always encourage the parents they'd say hey like so and so can't come to practice on tuesdays because they've got lacrosse practice on tuesdays and i said mm. that's totally fine like please you know so and so can't come to practice on thursdays because they've got piano lessons or swim practice like i'd prefer that like my parents instilled that in me too like we were encouraged to play every sport and find the ones that we liked and let go of the ones that we didn't like. But that meant that like I figure skated from like age six to age 14 before deciding that, okay, like of my activities, that was the thing that was going to get cut. And I was going to move away from that and move towards other sports that I was liking more. And I think that that's like the big thing for young athletes in particular is that like their story is not being done, being written. Like they have so much time. It's interesting. There's my, my fellow Austrian, Anna Gasser, who started snowboarding at 16, mm -hmm. I think, and won World Cup or World Championships a year or two later. Yeah. Just because she's she wasn't a full-blown athlete by the time, just in a different sport. Yeah. Right. And she went from gymnastics to to snowboarding and she was just insanely great at it from the from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Is this something that works for almost any sport? Or is there like an age where you have to know what you want to do to to until a, a, a certain age? I don't think so. like I think that there's there's there are probably some sports where it's like you probably age out of it like you're probably not going to like get into ski jumping <laughs> as like a 30 year old like I yeah, think you yeah. have to like learn to not be afraid when you're like 12. Mm. So I think all the Nordic combined athletes and all the ski jumping athletes that's kind of like a you started early 
Same with like luge, like those kids start in like third grade. It's also a weight uh, thing yeah, to that. Totally. They yeah. start them really young, probably like probably professional gymnastics, that kind oh. of stuff, right? You're probably not going to go from soccer to professional gymnastics. That's like a 20 year old. Um, there are definitely sports that are very age dependent in that regard, as far as like um, timeline for skill development. But I think there's a lot of sports that we see crossover athletes all the time. Some that are like endurance focused, right? Like a mountain biker coming over to the, coming over to like running or a runner going over, if they've got bike handling skills, going over to, to being on the bike, um, high level, um, like team sports athletes, um, soccer, lacrosse, field hockey, regular, ho like ice hockey. We see those athletes, uh, soccer, football, et cetera, come over to, to running and other endurance sports pretty easily as they, as they're older. And it's just like a base level of fitness and athletic ability and skill. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily set in stone that you have to make this decision by X, Y, and Z. Heather Jackson's a great example of that. Like she played hockey at Princeton, um, like played hockey through college and then started road running, which turned into triathlon and was like an Ironman triathlete in like for a decade plus and like just came over to trail and ultra running recently and just won the Havilena 100 mile you know, like in year, year two of her trail and ultra running career. And she's like also a total badass on the gravel bike. Like, so I think there's like, there are lots and she's gotta be 39 or 40. So there's like lots of room for people to explore and play, I think in different sports while at the same time, like, I'm not going to tell you to like, go pick up Olympic gymnastics as like a 30 something year old. Yeah. Thank you. I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you said in a previous interview, you love how your body feels when you're running. Mm -hmm. Can you describe this feeling for us? But then also, is this, is this feeling what ultimately led to you becoming a trail runner? Yeah, I think that it's like this degree of freedom and like movement that uh, feels really unburdened, I guess, by like gear and equipment. Like I love biking and I love skiing and I do a lot of different sports, but there's always like an equipment burden that goes along with those. So I think running has just like been a source of freedom. That being said, like being like horribly injured in 2021, there have been moments in time where I do not like how my body feels running because it feels awkward and cumbersome and not like it's working like it's supposed to. And I feel like I'm finally in a place where running feels really natural again, but it was like a two plus year like experience of like not being very happy with how I felt running. Um, But I do think that that's why I liked running and not skiing in high school because running was easy and skiing took so much work. Um, it's why I was a good soccer player because I could run for 90 minutes and sprint around indefinitely. Um, but I do think that it's this degree of like exploration and freedom without being worried about like equipment malfunctions um, that really makes trail running so appealing to me that it's just like my feet and my backpack and I can be out for 12 hours and have a good day without like having a flat tire or a ski binding breaking or something like that. Well, I guess there's kind of the equivalent of a flat tire and running as well. Yeah. You can have a, we call them. Yeah. I joke that they're still called mechanicals, yeah. even if it's not like a actual bike mechanical. As a coach, what, what made you decide to coach all the athletes? I was a very poor graduate student. Like I was just broke. And, um, Jason Coop, who's a mentor of mine was hiring for coaches. And I had like been told that I should coach for a long time. Like I felt really comfortable coaching like youth athletes. Like I coached an, 
I coached again, cross country skiing and biathlon and, and running from like for ages like nine to 16 and felt really comfortable doing that. It felt very simple. Um, but coaching adults felt very scary to me. Like I was worried that I was going to hurt someone because like I had been hurt doing biathlon. Like I, like coaches didn't listen to me. They let me train too much. I got super overtrained and I was worried that like that, like I would do that to adult runners or adult athletes, which is kind of silly in hindsight. Mm. But when I, when Jason Coop announced that he was hiring for new coaches and I was this poor grad student and I was like, okay, maybe like, maybe I could do this and like afford rent in Vancouver, Canada, um, which is a very cool, but very expensive city on a meager grad student budget, um, like wanted mentorship and wanted coaches to like help me develop as a coach and help teach me essentially anything that I felt like I was weak in and have people to bounce ideas off of and quite like people that I could say, Hey, like this is happening with an athlete. Like, what do I do? I didn't feel confident that I could do that on my own. And so, yeah, when Jason was hiring, I was like, okay, like I could do this if I have someone to help hold my hand. And so that was like seven years ago now, I want to say that they brought me on. Um, and I coached with them for six years. I just went out on my own this past year, um, to kind of pare down my roster a little bit and, um, just make it more sustainable for me. But yeah, it was this big hesitancy that I was going to like accidentally hurt someone and, uh, had to regain a lot of confidence. And I've, I, I have athletes that I've coached that entire time that have been with me since like day one. And they would even tell you that like my coaching style has changed over that time period where it's like, I definitely ask more of them now than I did five or six years ago. And one of that's like, they've developed as an athlete too, but it's also like, I, I wouldn't say it's taking risks, but I like have evolved as a coach and like know that my athletes can handle more. Whereas, whereas I think I was like very, very, very conservative when I first started coaching like adult athletes for trail and ultra running in particular. Cause I just didn't, I didn't think it was worth like anyone getting hurt for. And how do you push people without hurting them? Is there, yeah. this is, it's always a fine line I'm, I'm assuming, but mm -hmm. yeah. How do you go about that? How do you have, what are your thoughts yeah. on that? And what might be pushing one athlete is like not pushing a different athlete, right? Mm -hmm. Like everyone's very individual. Um, like I've got some athletes that run 120 miles a week and I've got other athletes that run, you know, 40 miles a week and they all can complete a hundred mile race type of thing. But it's like, I think it's communication is what it comes down to. Like, can I have an honest and open communication, like communication with them? Can I say, Hey, like, I know you're, you're going to be tired at the end of this week and that's okay because rest is coming type of thing. And I think as long as they understand that it's, it is like a two way communication street, like I need them to be honest with me and I'm going to be honest with them and vice versa. Then it's like not as scary Cause I think it's like, they're not afraid that if they tell me something, I'm going to take away miles or, you know, change their training plan drastically. It's more like, Hey, like I've got this going on. How do we modify it? And it allows me to be like, yeah, like, let's not push it. I've got an athlete who fell recently and his hip is bothering him. And it's this whole situation. I'm like, yeah, don't run this week, please. Like, let's get on the bike. You're going to go see your physician. We'll get it sorted out. And then like, we'll make a new plan from there. But it's like the kind of not panic, have that conversation and then like figure out how to best move forward for them. Is this a real fear that you're taking away somebody's miles? 
I definitely have friends that have been in that boat before where it's like, if I tell my coach I'm tired, they're going to cut down my miles. Cause some athletes, and, and I think it's understanding that about different athletes. Like some athletes I have are like more obsessive than other athletes. I find that you collect people who are kind of like you mm. too. Like I joke that my athletes are like a group of misfit toys. <laughs> like we're all a little bit weird and it's because you like attract what I think you put out into the world a little bit. Um, so it's like understanding that there are some athletes that, if I tell them to run 40 minutes easy, they'll sprint through 40 minutes to try to run as many miles as possible on their recovery run. Versus if I tell them to run four miles, like that same athlete might take that easier, but a different athlete might run four miles as fast as possible. So the run is done as fast as possible. So it's like this fine balance of like understanding, like if I tell you this, how are you going to, like, what are you do on your end? I've got some athletes where it's like, I can say, Hey, run 60 to 90 minutes today. And they're not always going to have to choose 90 minutes. They're going to choose the 60 minutes or 70 minutes or 81 minutes, whatever. But then there are other athletes who like will always do as much as you tell them to do. And so it's like finding that fine line of like understanding as individuals. If I tell you X, are you going to do X? Or are you going to do Y? Are you going to do X squared? Like what are, what's the actual outcome there? And I think that's why it's like really important once again to have that open line of communication because, like, while I think I'm a good coach, I, like, cannot read minds. And so it's really important to, like, be able to talk about it. As a founder who burned out, I believe that every athlete, every founder should have a coach and should have some guidance, mentors, people who support. You as a coach, what do you say to pro athletes who have no coach? Yeah, I think it's interesting because people ask why I, why I have a coach all the time. Like, I'm a coach. Like, why would I need a coach? And I think that it's... I think that it makes it even more clear to me, like why I should have a coach because I sit with people's training logs all day, every day. Um, if I did not have a coach, I would go and run two hours easy-ish every day. I'd never take a day off. I would never do an interval workout. I would never go to the gym. I would just do like what quote unquote makes me happy. And then I'd also spend most of my time worrying, am I doing enough? Am I doing too much? What does that balance even look like? And so I think that for me, having a coach isn't necessarily because I don't know what to do. It's because I want to give that mental bandwidth like to someone else. Like I've got enough going on. I don't need to spend the rest of my waking hours wondering if a four hour long run was long enough or not. And should I actually take a rest day on Sunday or should I take a rest day on Monday? Like it's just nice to have someone in my corner who believes in me, but also who can be like, yeah, no, you need to chill out. Like you need to take a day off or actually, can you please do this workout on Wednesday? Like, that'd be great. So I think for athletes who don't have a coach, I think a lot of them do have like a peer mentor or a mentor who's like a slightly like who might be above, above them. Like either someone in their corner who is at a similar skill level that they can say, Hey, like, this is my race schedule for 2024. Does that make sense? Or do you think I should do X, Y, or Z thing here versus there? Like Jim Walms is a prime example. Like, yes, he might be coachless, but he has Francois and um, Simone uh, Gosling, I think, to like, like bounce his ideas around with every day if he wants to. And I think that that is not traditional coaching, but it is this like mentorship. It's someone that you trust mm -hmm. and knows you very well who can help you make adjustments, um, which I think is really important. And so I think that, you know, I would, I, I mean, I would encourage everyone to have a coach, but for some people it's like, They really need the like optimal flexibility of just like figuring out what they're going to do when they roll out of bed every morning. And for me, I just like, I need a little bit more structure than that. 
in part because like while I am a professional athlete, like I have I have other things going on. And so my time is like precious in that sense. Like I don't have just like eight hours every day to go figure out what I want to do for a run. Like I've got this window and then by 10 a.m. or whatever or by noon, you know, I've got like I've got calls that I've got to be on. I've got meetings that I need to be at. I've got, you know, things that have to get done. You're probably sitting in my inbo- like email inbox right now, just like never having been responded to because it's like if I don't have time, it just doesn't get done. So I think that I'd encourage all athletes to at least experiment with a coach because I think it like you will realize that it's not about accountability and it's not about doing things that you didn't think were possible or that you're capable of. It's like having someone that believes in you and having someone to just like take that mental burden away. Talking about the parallels then uh, of founders and runners again. <laughs> <laughs> um, me as a as a serial founder, I I burned out in after scaling a a, a a company, offices in in LA and Vienna. We built an app with millions of users, and you know had to manage time zones and all of that. Yeah. I had very little coaching and very little guidance, and and it's it's fortunately. Um, it's some, it's something that we're talking about now, having mentors, having coaches, even as founders, but I didn't really have that at the time. Um, and then you wake up one day and you realize that it just, you can't move forward because you, you burnt out, you have no energy. Um, you also mentioned in, in a previous interview that burning out and being at your best can be very, very close together. Mm -hmm. When you go on a trip and you love it for a week, but after day six, seven, eight, you also realize that this is my body um, or my mind's limit. Mm-hmm. How do you approach that? And, and how can can both, both me and our listeners do, do better at this? Yeah. I mean, I come from this interesting background where I, you know, I, I mentioned being like burnt out and overtrained in regards to the sport of biathlon, which is just in athletics in general. And that was I, I talk to athletes a lot about being burnt out or being overtrained. And what something I stress with them though too is that burnt out is like oftentimes it's like a like this emotional, this mental lull, this place where like physically you can do the training, but you just like mentally it's hard to hard to get there. You're not excited about it anymore. Being overtrained, it's not like a it's not a verb. You can't like actively overtrain. You can overreach, but like being overtrained is like it's I I like to say that it's it's a noun it's the end of the tracks. Like you have been actively overreaching for so long, for weeks and months and maybe even years and gotten to a point where you physically are in this new location, this new noun that is overtraining. It's not something that you're actively doing. It's something that you you do, you do too much elsewhere and you get to this place. And so for me, that's where I ended up with biathlon. And in part, it's because I like, if you told me to jump, I'd say like, how high? And I think that's like, there's a founder mentality in that too. It's yeah. like, how can I fit 120 hours into this work week? Like as an athlete, I think there's a lot of that too. Like people who excel and get to the top of the podiums have that same mentality where it's like, what can I do to get there? Do I need to double every day? Do I need to triple every day? Like how many hours am I training a week? How many, how can I fit in another session? How can I take a rest day if someone else isn't taking a rest day today? Like it's that kind of like, it makes you really good, but it's also like your biggest weakness. Um, and I think that's like that parallel being like that edge of being at your very best and also like being one step away from like being completely over it. Um, and that's like, that's this, this place that I got to in my previous sport in biathlon. And I think that what that has meant both as a coach and as an athlete now is that I don't, I don't sweat the small stuff as much. It 
probably hindered some of my early running because I didn't want to take running seriously. Because if I took it seriously, then I could get hurt. If I cared, then I would get hurt, right? And so now it was more about like, it was more about keeping it fun. And now I've gotten to a place where it's like, I can do the little things. Like I can drink the protein recovery drink and I can do my mobility exercises. And that doesn't mean that I care too much about it, but it also means when I'm supposed to run for two hours and I only run an hour 45 because my, that's what my schedule allowed or that's how much I felt like running. I don't worry about those other 15 minutes. I'm not the runner you see in the parking lot running circles until their watch hits exactly 10 kilometers instead of 9.88 or whatever. Um, I think that's kind of where that difference lies. It's like understanding that it doesn't have to be perfect. Understanding that like flexibility is important. Taking an extra rest day instead of not taking a rest day at all. Like I think that some of that's like conservatism of like not wanting to be hurt again, but it's also like emotionally being in a place where while I think balance is a fallacy, like I don't think balance truly exists. I now understand that like nothing like nothing needs to be perfect it just needs to be like um i don't know good enough which i think there's like a quote about that that i'm going to misquote horribly it's like don't let like don't let perfect get in the way of good enough or something of that nature and i think that that is where i've gotten in which it's like yeah the two hour run might be an hour and a half run and some other day it might be two and a half hours because i misjudged the length of the run and i was out there longer like i and i don't not to say i don't care but i don't worry about it and the Corinne of 10 years ago was like not a good person to be around if that like if I didn't get my full workout in if I couldn't run because a meeting came up instead like I was not a fun person to be around and now it's like okay if I have a busy work day that today might be a rest day or today I might only run for 40 minutes and then like I'll adapt later in the week not to make up the time but just to move a day around instead and I think that that has taken a lot of growth and maybe it, I was a perfectionist before and I'm not anymore. I don't think that people can change that dramatically. But I think I recognize that like my self-worth isn't tied up in like that run being perfect or that gym session being perfect. And it's more like, I don't know, you're an amalgamation of everything that you accomplish instead. I mean, uh, I do think better can be the enemy of good. Yeah. There um, we go. We got the quote, right? I, I don't know if I'm, <laughs> I'm messing it up now. But <laughs> Um, but what is good enough? And I mean, as a coach mm -hmm. and, and me as a founder, right, we, we, we should be numbers driven. Like yeah. we have our KPIs and we have our things that we, yeah. we want to reach. And then is 70%, 80%, 90% Or what is that? What is that number? And what are those KPIs that you're looking for? Yeah, we joke. So I use like training peaks for, as a coach, like for my training logs for athletes. And it's like, did the box turn green or not? Like, were you close enough that the box is green at the end of the day or is it yellow or orange or red? Um, and I think that I've also told people too that like people are wondering like who's the right coach for them, et cetera. And I'll tell them that a program that's 80% right for you, but it's with someone that you believe in is way better than a program that's 100% right for you that you don't have faith in. Like belief becomes like this weirdly powerful tool yeah. in, in athletics, in business, et cetera. And so I think that, I don't know, maybe it's that 80% mark, right? If you're show, if you, if you can make it to 80% of your workouts, 80% showing up 80% of the time, maybe that is good enough. I don't know that we have like a defined, perfect, measurable qual quantity. I tell athletes all the time, like, Hey, 20 minutes counts. Like, cause I've got athletes myself included in this mess where it's like, maybe they're supposed to run 75 minutes today, but it's not going to happen. And it feels, they feel silly getting out for only a 30 minute run. 
Like, why, like, why would I do 30 minutes when I was supposed to do 75 minutes? And they'll just like, they won't do anything at all instead. And part partially that's like maybe guilt or shame or whatever might be like housed in that. But I tell them like 20 minutes counts. A walk that turns into a run counts. A run that turns into a walk counts. Like it's that consistency and showing up that matters. And so I don't know that there's like a perfect like metric that we should be striving for. Like what is that training stress score that athletes need to achieve in order to get to X, Y, and Z. But I think it's about showing up on days where you don't want to. Like, but again, it's kind of that mentality of like 20 minutes counts. Might not be perfect. You might not be in the perfect optimal shape for your whatever race that's coming up, but it's kind of like that consistency and showing up over time that I think ultimately ends up allowing for success and hopefully allows for like not burning out and allows for you to keep most of the balls that you're juggling in the air. You know, I used to joke with athletes that I was bringing on that like my divorce rate's really good. Like we've got zero, a zero percent divorce rate. Um, and like that, I think that still stands actually, which is great, but it's like, yeah, like people, you know, like you're juggling more than that. Right. Unless you're like, I don't know. My single athletes are probably more trouble than my married athletes that have kids because they have too much time and they'll, they'll do double what you ask of them. But it's like finding once again, that even if balance doesn't exist, it's like finding that balance. And I think that that is at the end of the day is about showing up most days. And again, 20 minutes counts. Let's still go back to numbers though. Okay. Um, if Drilling you, down if you are numbers. as a startup founder, right, you mm -hmm. want to grow your business and you have your 10% week over week growth goals, for example, and mm -hmm. you have a user or revenue goal at some point. Well, cool. you can explain vesting uh, to me later. Exactly. Too. I'll, I'll, do, I'll gladly do that <laughs> in the commercial break. Perfect. Um, how can we quantify um, the numbers in, in running in, in your coaching and or what other like one, two, three numbers? Is it miles per week um, that we really need to look for? Yeah, I think I, so it's interesting. Like when I'm training road running athletes, we definitely hone in more on miles per week. When I'm training trail athletes, it's definitely more about hours per week because it's like the trail doesn't care if you run a six minute mile or a 10 minute mile, it turns out. Um, it's like hard to quantify that. So uh, say I've got an athlete training for a specific race. We'll, we'll set some metrics for them. Like maybe we've got an hour goal for this week or an hour goal for this weekend. You know, I want them to train eight hours over the course of two days and we need to hit X, Y, or Z vert per mile. So vertical gain per mile. So there are, there are metrics that crop up all of a sudden, which are kind of nebulous and periodically asinine, right? Like, they, like, do they actually matter? To a degree? Yes. But I think it comes down to specificity, right? So like what, what I might have one person doing, because they're training for UTMB is going to be different than an athlete training for Western States or Havelina, a flat race versus a super verty race. Like th those metrics that we're trying to hit are going to be different. You know, my Western States athlete doesn't need to be running 30,000 feet of gain every week. My UTMB athlete might need to have a few weeks like that, et cetera. So I think, I think if I was going to pick specific metrics, that's what's, what it's going to look like. It's going to look at hours per week, hours for their long run, and then probably vertical change during the week that matches up with the race they're training for. Because specificity becomes like that really important metric as we move closer and closer to race day. Right now we're in this like very funky time of year where races, racing for the most part is like a long way off in the, at least in like the Northern hemisphere. And so it's like, they're gonna be, now it's back to basics. They're running less, they're doing shorter intervals, they're going to the gym. It's kind of like winter winter reset mode. It's a lot different than when they hit the summer season and it's like race specific. And then I think the other thing I stress, which once again is like, how is that quantifiable? We're not sure is 
I'll tell athletes, like, particularly really busy athletes, like, what are our key sessions during the week? Like if you, if you're only going to be able to prioritize two or three sessions, maybe it's two, maybe it's one session. How are we going to prioritize those sessions? And so generally I'll signal to them, like my really busy athletes who they know they're moving things around every week due to their work schedule. They know that they're going to have to maybe not, not hit one or two of their runs because I don't know, their kids are sick or they're solo parenting for three days because their partner's at a business meeting, et cetera. I'll signal like, Hey, these are the most important workouts this week. We need to prioritize these. That means you're going to try to run this when you have gotten sleep, when you are fueled, et cetera. Um, and you can do the other easier work on the days that feel a little bit more off. So for that, it's like, okay, they've got their interval session during the week and they've got their long run during the week. And we'll try to prioritize those two sessions over everything else type of thing. So it's like, I don't care if you miss the 40 minute easy run, if we got the VO2 max or the lactate threshold session in. I don't care if we had to cut this 75 minute endurance run because we also prioritize making sure we got in the three hour long run this weekend. So it's like, they're the big metrics, the, like the volume, the vert and the intensity, like on the probably macro scale. And then on the micro scale, week to week, it's like, did we prioritize? Like you, did you sleep enough? <laughs> did, did you come into most of your workouts fueled? And like, did we hit these two sessions? Like we're checking the boxes, even if not every day is turning green. I think the key here is, is focus on what's important. Yeah, I think so. I think it's like, and that also is like a really broad term, right? Like what is most important at the end of the day? Like you're not going to get divorced. Your kids are going to love you, et cetera. <laughs> because there's this like saying too, where it's like the only person who's going to remember that you worked 80 hours a week is like your spouse and your kids. Like no one else is going to tell you good job. Yeah. We loved Brian because he worked 80 hours a week for 20 years. Like no one's going to remember that at the end of your career your kids are and your significant other is and maybe my dog but it's like you know it's like trying to what matters becomes this really broad term for a lot of people and so it's like i like to say that athletes um aren't runners who people like they are people who happen to really like running mm. and so it's like a, a, we have to start with them being people first and then fit running into their lives as opposed to being like well these are the workouts you have to do and if you don't do them you're a failure right like we have to I think as a coach, it's my job to like see you as a puzzle and then fit running into that puzzle in a way that like doesn't further strain your career, your family, your relationships, et cetera, because those things should be more important than your running, ideally, unless you're a professional runner and then maybe there's some like skew there. But I think <laughs> that like ultimately, like even yeah. like I'm a professional runner, but I want to be successful in my career. I don't want to leave my husband in a lurch all the time be like, peace out. I'm going to New Zealand for two weeks. Like, you'll be fine on your own. I know you're working 80 hours a week in healthcare. Mm -hmm. Like, but later, bye. Like, trying to be cognizant of, like, maintaining relationships with my family, maintaining relationships at home. Like, all that is as important, if not more important, than my running. And, like, I say that as a professional runner. So there are definitely months where running takes priority but you have to like, it has to come back around the other way. Otherwise you're going to be a very lonely, broken runner. And that's like not sustainable either. We, we've only met this morning, mm -hmm. but uh, you seem very balanced and you have all these things going on. You're a professional runner, you're a writer, you're an editor, you're a coach, you're a podcast host, you're a presenter. Like I don't even, I, I think I even forgot something. You're a scientist. Uh, I'm a substitute uh, science teacher sometimes. Wow. 
right? I can't even, I can't even get two things, like manage two things in my life. So how do you balance and plan your week and, and in general, your life and your focus? What, what's the most important to you? And then what is the thing that gets left behind if you don't have enough time in a certain week or month? Yeah. So I joke that I have so many jobs because I don't like any one of them enough to do it full time, which is not entirely true. Like I like, I like most of my jobs, but in part, it's like a lot of them are a labor of love too. Like, um, my like working, like working with free trail, for example, like I love free trail and I believe in it and I believe in what we're trying to do, um, both like in the U S and, and broader than that as like a very small media company. Um, but like me working as like, kind of like the managing editor, editor in chief, like that is you know, I'll say it's probably 30% funded and 70% volunteer, right? Like the time that I'm putting into it. And that's, that's okay because I know that I'm investing in this like greater goal and this hopeful greater thing as I develop skills, um, within, within that job. Oh, I'm actually, I'm, I'm part of a coaching startup too now, which is like a whole nother situation. Um, use, utilizing like AI and it's super, super cool. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a little bit chaotic, my husband will be like, oh, do you have to work today? He's an ER doc. So he's like, has, you know, Tuesdays, random, like a random Tuesday off. And I'll be like, can you go skiing? Do you have today off? Like, do you have to work today? And I'll be like, there's always work to be done. We joked before we hit record that, you know, there's like the adage of like, I didn't want to work nine to five. So now I'm working for myself yeah. so I can work 24 seven. <laughs> and there's a little bit of that. And I've had to, I've had to get a lot better at setting boundaries and like I, this morning I set up all of my out of office notifications on my three different email accounts to be like, Hey, like I'm in a different time zone. My responses are going to be delayed. Like if it's an emergency, here's my phone number. But I didn't have, I haven't always had that balance. Like as a coach, you know, you get text messages at 10 PM and it's taken a lot of control to be like, do I need to respond to this right now? Or can this be responded to at 8 AM tomorrow morning? Um, because I think it's it's not none of my jobs are ones where it's really easy to clock in and clock out of. It's not like you clock in at 8 a.m. and you're out at 5 p.m. But that being said, you can still have boundaries. And it's taken me a long time to set up boundaries. And by setting up boundaries, I find that my jobs, plural, are all more sustainable. But the things that have fallen by the wayside historically have been like taking care of myself which I don't recommend. I'm sure this is a similar experience as a founder, right? Like taking yeah. care of yourself goes out. I'm supposed to be a professional athlete, mm. but taking care of myself is the thing that falls by the wayside. That means I don't go to the gym. That means I don't do my PT. That means I don't go and see like someone for manual, like manual tissue, tissue therapy. And I've had to like literally block in my schedule. Like Corinne goes to gym in the afternoon. Otherwise I will take meetings and calls. And I live, I live a five minute walk from the gym. It's like, not like a, it's a big ordeal to get there. But if I don't block it in my calendar, it does not happen. Um, if I'm not contracted to be writing something, like I love writing. Like I really, I've got a book idea that I want to like run with. Like I've got, I've got all these ideas bouncing around. But if I'm too busy, like my personal writing that I'm not, if I'm not contracted to do something right now, falls by the wayside. If I don't have a column that I'm doing, et cetera, like that's something that gets cut. And for the longest time, I was like, I want to write more, but I don't think I can make a living at it. And it's like, well, if you never write, you also can't get paid to write as well. So I've found like, I have found ways to create one boundaries and two, like um, blocking time in my schedule because I've recognized if I don't block time, it will. And that's like, it's stupid. It's like, I block time to answer emails 
because there are people sitting in my inbox, like friends or like a, a friend of a friend who has a, a simple request for me that I really want to take care of. I really want to help this person out. But if I don't block time to answer these, this set of emails, like it'll be in there for weeks and weeks and weeks. So I think it's like boundaries are one thing, but then, yeah, just like being really cognizant with my time and then knowing when to shut it down too. Like knowing that I can set it up so that I can walk away for 72 hours, which felt very stressful for a long time. Yeah. My honeymoon was the first time I had ever set an out of office email responder for my coaching athlete, like my coaching clients. And that was like super stressful. And I had a whole system in place. Like if, and if you have an emergency, like this is the person that you're going to call. And my husband was like, is someone really going to have a coaching emergency? And I'm like, I don't know, but maybe, and they can call this person while I'm gone. And it's like, that's one, a little bit insane, but two, like I had never set that boundary before. And all my athletes were like, so thrilled for me. They're like, oh my goodness. Yeah. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Like enjoy, enjoy Istanbul and enjoy skiing in like the Caucasus. Like that sounds awesome. And so it was like, but it takes like, it takes doing that and then realizing that like the world's not going to fall apart. Like it turns out like they can keep running and their training log is like functional and like the things on free trail will get posted, et cetera. Like delegating and setting up things feels impossible until you do it like the first time. And then you're like, oh, okay. Like, well, I might be the glue for the situation. There, there are, there's technology that allows you to like not respond to emails after a certain time that was also my biggest fear like when i was on vacation yeah. um i used to um, have dinner have some drinks and when my partner got got tired i would sit on my computer at 11 p.m or midnight for two hours <laughs> responding to unimportant emails for like but yeah. every single day of the week that's oh. what I, I needed to do that i had that yeah uh, inner conflict like i could just couldn't help it and it turns out like they, and I've worked for bosses like this too, where it's mm -hmm. like they worked 24 seven. And so I felt like the expe expectation was for me to work 24 seven. And I'd feel bad if like, I didn't get back to their email by a certain time. And I realized like they're emailing me at 3am. Like that's not my problem. Oh, that's not a me problem. That's a them problem. Yeah. But it's really, it's really hard. It's really hard being on any side of that. And I recognize that my athletes they are the people that like, while I, I enjoy and most of them have great boundaries, that's like where I've had to establish boundaries the most because it's a, it's a people business. And like, it's, they're my friends in a way, like they're paying to be my friend mm -hmm. sort of, but like, I like they, it turns out they are totally okay mm -hmm. if I don't respond to them until the next day. But it's like setting that expectation. Like, oh, I texted Corinne after 8 PM. She's not going to text me back until tomorrow morning. Like that it's like, as soon as that expectation is clear, as, as soon as everyone knows what the expectations are, there's no disappointment or confusion, but it's really hard to establish those expectations, I think, both like as a boss and as like an employee, et cetera. So I don't know, we're still working on it. Um, do you think, do you think AI will help? I mean, you mentioned that AI coaching business and uh, before you answer, I have a bit of a, a personal story with that as well. In, in 2021, me and my team built a sleep coach connected to the aura ring because I had an aura ring for a while and I realized that I get my readiness and sleep score but what is it really helping me and mm -hmm. like it's nine hours yeah. exactly like the sleep score is really high but I feel like crap and can I actually <laughs> can I actually un understand this better so that's kind yeah. of like my experience with this whole like AI coaching thing mm -hmm. first of all do you think AI coaching will make your life e easier like having an AI element but then also tell us a little bit about this new project that you're working on. Yeah. So I'm working, um, 
I guess first, I think AI is super cool. And I think that there are different iterations of AI and machine learning um, that go beyond kind of like a like an open source AI versus like a internal AI system that like engineers have worked on from like a machine learning standpoint. Um, I think it's really cool. And I don't think it's going to like destroy anyone's coaching careers. I think it like is going to be a really a, a new addition to the coaching world. And I think if anything, I think the only thing it's going to affect is that I think it could kill static plans. Like we don't need static plans anymore. Like plan, every plan should be adaptable. And I think that's where like AI comes into place. Um, so I'm working with this um, small company called Tracer and it's um, a number, a couple of engineers who are brilliant, um, who have very like, uh, they're yin and yang, these two guys, um, but they're out of Salt Lake City, Utah. And they've brought on four founding coaches, myself, Max King, um, Sage Kennedy, and Sandy Nightpaver um, to be kind of like their, their first group of coaches. And we've worked with the engineers to create plans that coach like I coach and coach like Max coaches and coach like Sage coaches. And so my goal with this is that it kind of kills the static plan that everyone can do better than a static plan where that does not adapt to you at all. When you've got to take three days off for a business trip, where do you start back up? When you get sick and you miss a day, where do you start back up, et cetera? Um, you're tired for a week. How, how do you get back on track? Like a static plan can't do that for you. And this is going to be that kind of like in between in which like not everyone needs one-on-one -on -one coaching. I say that as we've already talked about one-on-one -on -one coaching. Not, every, not everyone can afford one-on-one -on -one coaching. Not everyone quote unquote needs one-on-one -on -one coaching, but having some sort of structure um, that knows what your goal is and knows where you're starting and can walk you from point A to point B is kind of nice. Like my mom has used similar programming. Um, my little brother is going to be one of our beta testers, which is really exciting. Um, but essentially you know, we've worked it. So like it, it coaches like I coach and I've seen the validation, which is really cool where you're like, oh yeah, if you're sick this day, does it do what I would do the next day? If you skip this workout, does it do what I would do the next day? Like how does it prioritize things? So basically we've taught the system to, to do that with the engineers, which is just mega, mega cool. Um, but what that will do is that like, I can only coach X number of people. Like I can't, I've had rosters as big as like 50 people and I was drowning and that was just too many people. I, I have like four Jeffs and I can't keep the Jeffs straight anymore at that point. I don't know who's racing what, I don't know who did what last weekend. Now I'm at a coaching level where it's like, cool. I know what everyone's doing. Like I could pop quiz myself and be like, this person is racing this race in six months. Yeah. Um, and so this is the balance, this is like that balance point where it's like, now I could help a thousand athletes and they'd be on a plan that's designed by me that coaches like I coach, but I've done the front leg work on it. And then they'll, I'll be able to do work along the way. Like IE, like present, you know, you can get this type of messaging X number of weeks out, like teach people kind of why we're doing what we're doing along the way. So there is kind of this interactive element, but it's like largely like not set it and forget it, but it's cool to be like, here, you want my input on doing a hundred mile race? Here you go. But it's not an athlete being added to like my physical one-on-one. -on -one. I've got a phone call with them, you know, every 10 days, et cetera, workload where like that has to cap out at a certain point. So I think it's cool. I think it's going to kill a static plan, which is exciting because I think everyone deserves better than a static plan. Mm. Um, and I don't think it's going to hurt one-on-one -on -one coaching because I think that's, that is a very different demand and a very different ask and a very different relationship than someone who just needs help getting from point A to point B but they otherwise feel like they like are in a good spot. I also think that the mentoring part and the accountability part is what you can't really achieve with a, with an AI because totally. you, you're not going to be 
you're not going to worry about disappointing and, and artificial intelligence. Yeah, you shouldn't anyway. I definitely have athletes yeah. who like, but that's a hang up for some of my athletes yeah. who like, they don't want to disappoint me. Yeah. And I'm like, you can't, you can't. Like you have to do some bad stuff yeah. to disappoint me, but I feel, I understand that sensation and I've got athletes that that holds them accountable, but I have other athletes where that is not like, it's, it's an, it's a, it's a detractor for them. It makes them feel bad. And so like, honestly, like having an AI that they, that they don't feel like they're hurting yeah, when they don't, when they can't do X, Y, or Z thing is actually better for some of them. So it's like this interesting balance of like price point versus like what you need out of the relationship. And so it gives people this dynamic smart, flexible training option that's priced justly, I think, versus like, I'm going to talk to this person. This person's going to give me daily feedback type of thing. Like it allows you to split those two things up into two very different camps. It would actually allow me to invest more of my time into athletes that need a lot more and send, I've got athletes right now who would probably benefit from this other thing because they don't, they don't want to talk yeah. to me. I don't know why you're paying me this much money if you don't want to ever talk to me probably bad for business to say that but it's like there's there's an alternative route here and i think these really smart systems are going to be that alternative route speaking of of, of planning mm -hmm. um i'm getting hungry let's, perfect let's talk about <laughs> uh, race day nutrition versus everyday nutrition like okay. what does corinne eat on a day-to-day -day basis and how does that change They're the things that I eat day to day that just aren't very, like, they're not very packable, right? Like, you can't just, like, racing pack very well. There's enough mandatory kit in there that turns out that a big uh, sandwich bag full of pizza or pie doesn't quite. Um, I, like, I think that food is, like, more than fuel even. Like, I think food is comfort and. I think that we oftentimes limit food to being fuel as like an athlete mindset, which I don't think like encompasses people's like full relationship to how they eat every day. Um, I personally love food um, and take a lot of joy in cooking and eating my day-to-day -day stuff, which like is super wide ranging. Like we've got friends who are ranchers in the US, so we get um, beef from them and uh, our friends who go elk hunting and deer hunting, so we get venison from them and uh, we live on the west coast of the u.s so we have amazing fish and great produce and that kind of stuff so I, I like to eat a little bit of everything including dessert i think dessert is overlooked in the athletic world and it shouldn't be overlooked and it shouldn't be a reward it should be like a commonality in your life um my dad is very like health conscious growing up but like ice cream was still like a daily occurrence which i think was a very good balance point as a kid um But that looks a little bit different when it comes to race day nutrition. And it also comes like if I'm racing a 50K versus I've done a FKT that was 171 miles long. And like what I eat during a 171 mile route is a bit different than what I'll eat even like this weekend at the 100K. What um, are you going to eat uh, this weekend? Eat? Oh, I am. I like to say that I am um, a, new, a sports nutrition agnostic. Um, in part because I've vomited up everything that's on the market, I think, at this point. <laughs> um, so I have a little bit of everything uh -huh. in my bag. I will have some, I'll have some gels. I'll have both like uh, Guroctane and Scratch like Superfuel mix out there. Um, I love eating from the aid stations when I need to, um, in part because like I think eating from the aid stations can like reset your stomach when things have gone a bit awry. Um, we can get really acidic out there. Um, where your stomach is just really, really acidic from running and eating a lot of sugar. 
et cetera. And so um, sometimes like bread and cheese turns out goes a long way. A quesadilla mm. has like saved my my race before just because I think it helps to like reset the system. Um, and knowing that like at some point in time, my nutrition will probably go off the rails and I'll be like just drinking sugar for potentially the last couple hours of the race is also like not to be like a surprise like that, that very likely will happen. And that's okay, particularly as it gets hotter in the afternoon on Saturday. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, I think I try to hit the recommendations that most people are after right now, which is like, you know, trying to get in at least around 60 grams of carbohydrates an hour, which is a task sometimes. Um, but I'm all about like mixing and matching out there and not feeling like, oh, I, I get sick of products too, where it's like, I tell myself, okay, you have to eat this gel right now, but you don't have to eat this type of gel again for another four hours. So like <laughs> you can, you can tolerate it right now versus being like, I've got to eat another one of these in 30 minutes. Like, no, thank you. So I think it's nice to have that ability to mix and match out there, but knowing that like I can troubleshoot super easily, I can eat from the aid stations. I fueled a race entirely on bananas before because it's the only thing that would go down for many, many hours. So it's like, and in Hong Kong, I fueled on like sticky rice and Generally, you can find something at the aid station that will sit well, even if you have to slow down for a little bit to make make sure the calories go in. But the biggest thing is knowing that things will go wrong, and that's okay. And like you can troubleshoot your way through it. I did my very first trail run running race mm -hmm. uh, in June this year. Yeah, seventeen uh, k's, nice. which for me it, it was a lot. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the day before, I asked uh, our camera guy here, um, who's a, a runner and a yeah. very experienced runner what should I eat for my race? Mm -hmm. And he says, well, you shouldn't try something new on race day. Mm -hmm. What have you eaten on a run? And I said, uh, chocolate croissants. So I ran the, the morning <laughs> of my race, I ran through Innsbruck um, to find chocolate croissants that I could pack for my race. And obviously as a, for my first ever race, I was quite a bit nervous and yeah. couldn't really sit still. So by the time my race started, there was no chocolate croissant left. You had ate, ate it all. Yeah. yeah. I think it's that, or you like get into the race and you realize that the thing that you thought was going to work really well was actually like really dry um, or like you don't have saliva anymore apparently. And so you like, it, you just have like a ball of like pretzels or Skittles or whatever it is, like just stuck in your mouth. Um, so don't recommend doing that. But yeah, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, don't try anything new on race day. But it turns out like you can, you can make it a long way on like soda or like Coke or I don't know, banana bread, whatever's out there. Like you'll find a way to make, make something work. Even if that means slowing down a lot, because it turns out like slowing down is not fun, but if you slow down, like then you're going to absorb things a little bit better and you can kind of reset the system. And I guess don't, I guess, you know, don't be afraid of a little bit of vomit. <laughs> turns out you can like puke and rally, uh, uh in a, in an ultra, just like you would at a party. I think we should go get uh, get some snacks, find some snacks. <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Corinne, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. For doing this podcast with me. I wish you all the best for your race and see you next time. Sounds good. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Trail and Scale podcast. If you like this episode, please take a moment and click that subscribe button. It really means a lot to us. Special thanks to our sponsors, Stardust Coffee and our production partners, Sledgehammer Studio and 2250. Go check them out and support them if you want to support us. Stay tuned, we have many more interesting athletes and founders lined up that we're going to speak to over the course of the next couple of months.